Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Lynn Paltrow. She's the executive director and founder of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women and has worked on numerous cases opposing the prosecution and punishment of pregnant women. We've increasingly heard about cases where fetal personhood curtailed the rights of women to have an abortion, but the whole concept of what fetal personhood actually is was decidedly fuzzy for me. We do all know that since the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade that granted the right to choose to have an abortion, the anti-abortion movement has been busy trying to overturn it. When they looked at the decision closely, they found that fetuses have never been recognized as persons in the whole sense. In fact, constitutional rights are granted at birth. This movement has therefore been seeking to have the rights of fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses treated as if they are entities with constitutional rights. So, how does the concept of fetal personhood work in practice, and what does this mean for the human rights of women? The anti-abortion movement often uh, claims that they are the newest civil rights movement, that what they're simply doing is carrying out a great American tradition of adding groups of people to the community of constitutional persons. The problem with that is that there is no way to treat fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses as if they are separate persons and add them to the Constitution without subtracting pregnant people from the Constitution. Lynn sets the stage with the devastating case of Angela Carter, which is instructive in the way that our legal system and our society works. This is a deep dive to better understanding what's at stake with fetal personhood. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. As we begin, can you give us an introduction to this topic? Absolutely. The argument that fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses are persons has been used to justify forcing pregnant women to undergo cesarean surgery. And one of the first cases I worked on as a young lawyer was the Angela Carter case, a critically ill woman, 27 years old, 25 weeks pregnant. Uh, She and her doctors, her Catholic parents, her husband decided to keep her alive for as long as possible. She had been fighting cancer all her life. She had a recurrence. And while she and everyone agreed that they would do everything they could to keep her alive, a hospital neonatologist said, I can save all 25-week fetuses and precipitated an emergency court hearing. And the only question before the court was, what rights does the fetus have? And even though the judge in the end understood that forcing Angela Carter to have cesarean surgery could kill her, moving her from the intensive care unit where she was getting vital support to an operating room where she would be subjected to major surgery, the judge ordered it anyway. The result was the fetus was born alive but was not viable and died within several hours, and she died two days later with the cesarean surgery listed as a contributing factor. The judge made the decision that he could sacrifice her right to life for the benefit of this what was a non-viable fetus. We also see more and more prosecutors using that claim to justify taking advantage of any number of existing criminal laws. Child endangerment then becomes what pregnancy is. 
In Chi- e- Excuse me. What do you mean by that? So there is a crime called child endangerment. South Carolina has it. Many other states have it. Child abuse, child endangerment. The argument is if a pregnant woman does something while she's pregnant that endangers the fetus, it can be punished as a crime. It doesn't even actually have to harm the child once it's born or the fetus. But the argument that fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses are separate becomes the reason or the argument prosecutors and some judges use to expand the scope of existing criminal laws to provide a mechanism for taking custody of pregnant women, appropriating their bodies and locking them up or subjecting them to surgery or subjecting them to state surveillance for the period of pregnancy. It is an entire reframing and reconceptualization of pregnant women and the people who can get pregnant as criminals. Because every pregnancy, in every pregnancy, there's a 15 to 20 percent chance that there will be a miscarriage or stillbirth. And actually, it's thought to be much, much higher in the very earliest moments after fertilization. So if we allow our legal system and our culture to personify the fertilized egg, from the perspective of the fertilized egg, by becoming pregnant, the woman has put its life in danger. That's totally crazy. So let's go to the next part here that I'm really (laughs) curious about. You and your organization, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, what is it that you do? How do you do your work? Okay, well, I would say we're on the side of human rights and civil rights that benefit everybody, uh, pregnant and non-pregnant people, and uh, the children they have. We combine a variety of skills. We do, among other things, criminal defense in the most simplistic form. We can explain our work by saying, if you're locked up because you're knocked up, you can come to us. So we are the leading organization representing women who've been arrested because they've been accused of having or attempting to have an illegal abortion or self-managed abortion. We are the leading group defending women who are arrested for experiencing miscarriages and stillbirths, for engaging in whatever activity plus pregnancy Because what it really does is say you take pregnancy and add it to something, it becomes a crime. A woman fell down a flight of stairs while she was pregnant, went to the hospital, explained what happened, talked about having considered at one point earlier an abortion. She is on her way home to her children, reassured that her pregnancy is fine, and she is stopped by a police car and taken into custody on charges of attempted feticide. And I know you're going to get to the question of what can people do. I will say a national outrage that we helped to organize did get uh, the Iowa police to drop that charge. But it is still threatened. Uh, They said it it might have been allowed if she had been in her third trimester of pregnancy, which raises the point of, is there a point in pregnancy when women lose their civil rights? And what we do is we use the law, we use public education, we use organizing. And sometimes that's literally standing outside of a courtroom, organizing a rally, public education to challenge the mythology that fuels this. And some of that mythology is about the war on 
drugs, which is a war on people. So, for example, the crack baby myth has been used extensively to justify expanding the child criminal laws as well as child welfare laws to be able to control pregnant people. We used the law, lawyering, criminal defense, representing leading medical groups and experts in the courts to stop these prosecutions to win release of women who are sitting in jail because they were pregnant, but also to build power so that we reach a point in our culture when we recognize that the health needs of half of our population uh, include maternal and reproductive health and that we stop segregating maternal and reproductive health as some special separate category and recognize it as what the human race needs in order to ensure survival of the species. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. You touched very briefly just now on the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s, and Americans were seized by the fear that crack-addicted black mothers were giving birth to a generation of damaged and vicious children. It was completely false, of course, but this still animates us today, and it's still affecting the way that we think about pregnant women. In what way is it affecting women today? Sometimes it makes sense to start from the recognition that this was a country that in part was founded on the principle that it was okay for some people to own and control the bodies of others. This ideology that was uh, uh, structured, put into place with law that created slavery is a theme we see throughout our history. It's still affecting us today. And uh, it's often surprising to me that particularly for white women <laughs> who, you know, in the midst of trying to give birth, discover that somebody's saying you don't control your body, we're going to decide for you, you have to have cesarean surgery. Or if you don't come in tomorrow for cesarean surgery, we're going to send the police out to get you. That they are surprised that this can happen in the United States. But it's very much part of a culture that started with an ideology that justified ownership of people's lives and bodies. The crack baby myth was another manifestation of the history of racism and sexism, white supremacy, male supremacy. Media was very instrumental in promoting an idea that there were a group of women, black women, who did not care about their children, who were so terrible that they took a drug that everybody knew caused permanent, unfixable damage. You had journalists and then prosecutors and others using this false claim about so-called crack babies. And I want to explain what that means. There are lots of things people are exposed to prenatally. Personally, I was exposed to a lot of nicotine. My mother smoked cigarettes. When I was born, nobody called me a Nick baby. Nobody defined my future prospects as limited by virtue of that exposure, now well known to increase the risk of stillbirths. It's associated with ADHD. The point is, it's not to say that babies weren't exposed prenatally to cocaine or the smokable form of it. In fact, in terms of epidemics, the largest number of children exposed prenatally to cocaine were in the 1970s when white people, rich white people, were using an awful lot of cocaine. We're the cocaine babies. 
The crack baby myth has been exposed. There's excellent research that says outcomes of pregnancy are primarily determined by the life you led before you ever became pregnant, the circumstances in which you lived before you ever became pregnant. But people and newspapers, including most recently the New York Times, have literally apologized for promoting the crack baby myth in a recent editorial in the New York Times called Slandering the Unborn. There's even a very brave journalist who says she wishes she hadn't written what she had and had done the research. How does this translate to the opioid epidemic that we see today? Because most of the women who are addicted to opioids now are not black. It's very interesting. First, I want to distinguish between addiction and use. Lots of people use lots of substances that do not interfere with their daily lives. Many people drink alcohol, and we don't assume they're alcoholics. And that we have to understand that that's absolutely true of drug use as well. In terms of the response to what's now called the opioid epidemic, it is absolutely true that it's perceived as one predominantly among white people. And the coverage of it and the response to it has been appropriately criticized as far less punitive, far less stigmatizing, because it is associated with white people. One of the very saddest reasons this is true is that to the extent that some of the white opioid dependency is the result of overprescription of pain meds, there's all kinds of evidence that doctors do not adequately respond to black people's pain. So they're not even given the painkillers that they need, which is not to suggest that that somehow protected them. There have always been black people who have become dependent on heroin and opioids at the same time that there is absolutely justified criticism and comparison of the response to crack and opioids in general. I will say the group that is not protected or uh, hasn't benefited from that particular form of racism are pregnant people. So that the primary arrests that are happening in the U.S. today in relationship to pregnancy are rural white women. So then how can we think about pregnant women who are using drugs, legal or illegal? Because sometimes women who are using drugs that are prescribed by their doctors are getting into trouble. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, do we see people of the capacity for pregnancy uh, who are pregnant as human beings, as persons with full constitutional rights, or are they in some kind of special separate class of persons that should be subject to surveillance and control? And unfortunately, the answer, I think, to that is many people think, yes, they should be. If I may digress for a minute or go back, there's a very famous case, two cousins. One is dying of a rare kind of cancer. The other one initially offers to do a bone marrow transplant and then eventually withdraws that offer and says, I'm not going to donate the bone marrow. And the cousin who's going to die, who's a person, goes to a court to say, please force my cousin to give me the bone marrow, otherwise I will die, my right to life. And the judge says, I disagree morally with your cousin's decision not to donate, but 
I cannot in the United States of America. It was a decision from the 1970s. I'm not Soviet Russia. I'm not Nazi Germany. I cannot, as a sitting judge, force one person to undergo any medical procedure for the benefit of another particular individual. I was speaking to a class about the Angela Carter case I spoke about earlier. There was a student who kept defending the court-ordered cesarean. And I finally said, explain to me if two people, these cousins, one man can't force another to save his life by undergoing a medical procedure for their benefit, why is it that Angela Carter, a pregnant woman, had fewer rights in relationship to a fetus whose personhood status, I'll, I'll grant you, is being debated? And you know what the student said? That's just the burden women bear. Oh, oh my God. Well, I have to say, I actually think that that is not explicitly enshrined in our legal system, but it is the operating theory of our current legal system. We have not gotten beyond that. And in fact, eventually we got a court to decide that what happened to Angela Carter was wrong, that pregnant women do retain their rights to medical decision-making at every stage of pregnancy, even if they're critically ill, uh, even if they are unable to communicate their wishes, then you find out from their family what they would have wanted. There was one dissent, and I have to credit this judge, because not only did he say it was okay that they forced her to have the cesarean surgery and killed her, and he articulated it in terms of state interests in the fetus, the fetus's separate rights, which is pretty typical of all the cases we work on. But he alone, of any judge to this day, actually bothered to think about the consequences of that. What are the consequences of treating the fetus as if it's separate? And he said, well, by becoming pregnant and continuing a pregnancy to term, a woman has entered a separate special class of persons. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that we have a history in the United States of thinking that it's acceptable to own another person's body. And so what is the precedent in other countries? I can't say I'm an expert on international law, but I, I can say what we, we can learn from other countries from the sort of flip side of this. So, for example, in countries where abortion is banned, is completely criminalized, what we have discovered is that women who experience miscarriages and stillbirths are often arrested because it's virtually impossible to distinguish between a miscarriage, a stillbirth, and an abortion. If you allow criminalization of things relating to pregnancy, if you make the loss of fetal life a crime, it will always be used to hurt pregnant women and by that I mean all pregnant women, whatever their hope is about any particular pregnancy, whether that is to be able to end one or to be able to uh, go to term and have the baby they've always wanted. So what we've seen, uh, for example, in Wisconsin, where they have this Unborn Child Protection Act, is 
The state does not make health care available to all. It creates barriers for women seeking reproductive health care. Instead, what's being funded more and more is a criminal law system, a civil child welfare or really apprehension system that enables other people to tell certain groups what is best for them and to make their medical decision and and life decisions for them. And this brings us to the subject of poverty. The people who are targeted for these kinds of state interventions and control where you can't access health care or safe housing or safe water, but somebody's going to be paid to report you and then control you, jail you, take your kids away. The people to whom that happens most often are low-income rural white people and black and brown people. So what is the logical conclusion of this policy? Let's say if it were rolled out nationwide, not just in Wisconsin, what would our society look like in 50 years? People are suddenly talking again about the Equal Rights Amendment. What we do have to start really talking about is what do we need to ensure that everyone actually is respected and supported in their ability to be full participants in our constitutional democracy? I think part of what this tells us is that we are still very much at the beginning of a very long-term fight. And certainly people who are focusing on America's, the new Jim Crow, the America's, all of the legacy of slavery, that battle is not over. We are still in the middle of that. We are also still in the middle of the fight for equal rights for women. And we have to understand that as many things as we've accomplished, as many victors as we've had, Until equality takes account of the capacity for pregnancy, we will never achieve equality. I keep thinking about the Angela Carter case and the judge and the doctor. So if, let's say, there had been a different judge, another judge could have ruled differently. But also, where did this doctor have this idea? Is it because he is being held accountable by laws that are in place in that state or by regulations in his hospital, that he felt that he needed to do this? Well, actually, it was a she. Oh, she? Okay. She believed she could save all 25-week fetuses. As I understand what happened, she went to the hospital lawyer to say, you know, I can save this fetus. We have an obligation to do that. It should have been the lawyer who said, hey, wait a minute, we're a hospital. Uh, we have ethical uh, mandates. Let's go talk to her. Let's go talk to her attending physicians and find out what's going on. Because there have been other cases where doctors believe that a woman's refusal of cesarean surgery was placing the life of the fetus at risk, and they run to the hospital lawyers. They don't even talk to the woman. They don't even talk to her attending physicians. That's how little meaning her life her consciousness, her values have to them. And that failure of communication uh, has been shown in a number of cases to be the problem because in several of the cases, when the court refused to order the cesarean, when they then went and talked to the family and explained what their concerns were, what the risks were, they were able to get consent. But it is the ideology that if you start from the place of there's a class of persons, and in this case we're talking about pregnant women, 
whose opinions and decisions may be overridden, then you don't have to talk to them and you don't have to listen to them. And so you then make decisions that might be right or wrong, but the person who bears the brunt of that decision when it's wrong is the person on whom you've operated, the person who you detain, the person who you locked up. Right. So how did you get into this work? I started out my legal career at the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project defending the right to choose abortion. I then started getting calls for the cases in which anti-abortion arguments, the idea that fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses have separate rights, were also being used to hurt women who had no intention of ending their pregnancies. For example, Angela Carter just wanted to live. She wasn't trying to have an abortion. And so the first criminal case I worked on was Pamela Ray Stewart, a low-income white woman in a very abusive marriage who gave birth to a baby who died shortly after birth and was arrested because there was an allegation of drug use during pregnancy, which turned out completely irrelevant, uh, because she hadn't gotten to the hospital quickly enough on the day of delivery. And as the prosecutor said, she had subjected herself to the rigors of sexual intercourse. Her placenta was blocking the birth canal, And what that meant is there was extreme bleeding when she gave birth. She lost enormous blood. The baby did too, and the baby did not end up surviving. So the argument there was her behavior killed the child that was eventually born. In the Angela Carter case, we did get a decision saying that pregnant women don't lose their civil rights, although that decision has not had precedential value throughout this country. We got the charges dismissed against Pamela Ray Stewart, and I began to work more and more on all of the different kinds of cases where anti-abortion arguments not only hurt women who need to end their pregnancies, want to end their pregnancies, but every pregnant woman. And it's not just pregnant women. It is the class of people who can get pregnant that we have historically called women because all of the anti-abortion rhetoric is really a form of hate speech about women. That if abortion is murder, is killing, is a genocide worse than any in the history of the world, which is what anti-abortion advocates, leaders, elected officials say, the people who have abortions are women The majority of the women who have abortions are already mothers. 84% of all women will eventually get pregnant and give birth and become mothers. They are talking about the women in the United States, all of them, including the mothers who have given birth at risk to their own lives and health, as people who are capable of the worst, most unforgivable kinds of crimes known to humans. You do amazing work. How can everyday citizens get involved here? You mentioned it briefly, but what really can we all do? Or how can we at least think about this differently than we have been? Well, one of the major exciting things that's happening now is more serious talk about how we provide health care for all, that this this is achievable in the United States. And one of the things people have to do is not only participate in the effort to get health care for all, 
but to make sure that that health care includes everyone, including the people who can get pregnant, and refuse, whether it's in their families, their labor unions, whatever organization they're involved in, to understand that reproductive health, maternal health are not separate kinds of health care. And we need people, uh, allies and all, to think about what happens if we keep talking about just defending abortion rights, just defending reproductive rights? No, we're defending the health care of everyone, including the people with the capacity for pregnancy. So changing that and insisting on inclusion of all is one thing people can do. Whatever issues people are involved in, there is intersectionality. So if they're concerned about decriminalizing marijuana, legalizing marijuana, make sure that they also think about what that will do for pregnant women who smoke marijuana. Will they have their kids taken away? It might be legal, but if child welfare can look at pregnancy and what a woman does when she's pregnant as a form of civil child abuse, how has legalization <clears throat> changed her life or protected her children from family separation, which I just want to say happens not just at the borders in the United States, but every day through the civil child apprehension system. People can recognize that their work to end mass incarceration also needs to end mass criminalization, the increasing use of the criminal law system as the only response to every problem. The entire structure of the criminalization of drugs in this country provides the blueprint for criminalizing pregnancy. The argument is we must be able to arrest people to protect their health. Well, obviously it doesn't work. So instead of saying we just need to protect and prevent criminalization of abortion, we need to prevent criminalization of health care. Let's all work together on that. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Ah, uh, well... I'm very hopeful that there is a new generation that understands the primacy of organizing. That change will come about by actually knocking on doors, creating relationships with other people, helping people to understand issues rather than just candidates. And I'm particularly impressed by groups like Make the Road New York and New Jersey, by Healthcare for America Now that have shown that if we put our resources into true grassroots organizing, and I would add direct action activism, uh, like that groups like uh, Repro Action are doing, I think we are already seeing change and we can eventually achieve the change we want. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. When I was getting ready for this interview, I read a long editorial piece in the New York Times about how women were being charged with a crime for having miscarriages or suffering stillbirths. It noted that these cases were rare, but the interview really did not make me feel like it was rare at all. I had the sense that the practice of punishing pregnant women is pervasive, even if we may not be aware of it. What's more, is that fetal personhood is increasingly used for controlling the lives of women and for stripping them of their constitutional rights. And I was truly taken aback by the mere existence of the notion expressed by one of Lynn's law students that this was the burden women bear. That made me shiver. 
I'm in awe of Lynn Paltrow and her amazing work, and we should all join the fight for the rights of women to reproductive and maternal health care, to prevent the criminalization of it, and for women to have equal rights under the Constitution. Ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment cannot come soon enough. Next week, our guest is Robin Steinberg. She's the CEO of The Bail Project and was previously a public defender for over three decades. We'll be talking about the injustice of the current bail system, how it ties into mass incarceration, and what a future without bail could be. It's enormously expensive to have a pretrial justice system the way that we operate it. American taxpayers spend $14 billion annually holding people in jail cells that haven't been convicted of crimes. And if you calculate the collateral consequences of that, it's estimated to be as high as $140 billion a year we spend to hold people in these horrible dehumanizing jail cells who have not yet been convicted of a crime and likely won't be convicted of a crime. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fadak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.